Constellation, Episode 5 Mary, Naima and Justine Mary is skiving off. She'd got up for an early morning meeting with Malaysia, then heard that it had been cancelled. God, she really needed some time on her own. Tim and Janneke have been on holiday all week. Holiday, which meant more time at home, annoying each other. They'd been planning to visit Mary's mum in the UK, but that wasn't going to happen. Tim had been Mardi ever since his dad phoned earlier in the week. He'd been annoyed that Mary let Tim go out at all. They hadn't even told him about the graffiti incident. But Mary knew that if Tim still lived in the commune with his dad, there would be zero control. And she'd had an argument last night with Yannicka about the Corona app. Mary wasn't having anyone following her every move. Yannicka called her antisocial. Yannicka had had the last word. Did Mary maybe trust Google more than the Dutch government? They were tracking her every move too, and not even anonymously. Obviously not. Yannicka was right as usual. The big tech companies were more powerful than states these days, and less accountable. She leaves a note along with her phone, she thinks that's pretty radical, in the kitchen, and tiptoes out of the house meaning to get some exercise cycling through the dunes. It's still early, so there are only a few people about. In a couple of hours, the cycle path will look more like a busy motorway. When she gets to the highest point of the ride, the dunes being the closest you get to hills around here, She can hear the sea in the distance. It sounds different these days, she thinks. You can hear further. Fewer planes on their way to Schiphol. The sea is calling her. She needs to feel the sand between her toes, smell the salt. And when she gets onto the beach, it feels great. She takes her shoes off and paddles, flinching at the icy water. She doesn't come here often enough, but when she does, it's always like coming home. She'd grown up looking out at a beach just like this one. Their house was right on top of a hill looking out over the Irish Sea. There was an island in the distance, but it was the Isle of Man, not Ireland. Once Mary had actually seen Ireland, 
when a mirage bent the light over the horizon, the land swelling up in the sky above the Isle of Man. As a kid, she used to stand for hours in the window, looking out at clouds and birds and sunsets and storms and waterspouts. Mary wishes that her parents had moved away when they still could. It was time that Mum really thought about moving, and it was going to be bloody impossible to sell the house. It had been impossible ever since the beginning of the 80s. It had been a thriving village, almost a seaside resort, on the edge of the Western Lakes, a perfect place to grow up. Mary remembers the day that changed all that. She'd been, what, 17? It was a crisp morning, just like this one, and the birds had woken her up early. As Dad was out at work already, and Mum was wont to sleep in, she decided to go for a walk along the beach before catching the bus to school. She snuck out of the gate, across the road, and climbed over the fence. She half ran, half skied down the slope, jumped off the concrete promenade onto the sand, and started north along the beach. Mary had always been a collector, a beachcomber, a tideline scavenger, walking with her eyes to the sand, following the last line to be deposited, always the most interesting, the freshest of the parallel, undulating lines of seaweed, flotsam and jetsam and dead things. The year before there'd been a million dead ladybirds, staining the tideline red. She never took a bag with her, maybe that was self-preservation, she only brought back what she could carry in her hands or pockets. A few red round stones, a smelly sea urchin and a strangely gnarled piece of wood were enough for one trip. Sometimes there was a decision to make, an exchange with the beach itself. I'll swap this spiky fish head for your peacock feather, thanks. When she returned home, there was the ritual of sniffing and washing. And if the treasures still stunk, then they were banished to the bin. This was the arrangement, otherwise her foundlings couldn't enter the house. Sometimes she picked up something that caught her eye and then vowed to continue in that vein. Bright yellow plastic fragments, blue string, whole limpet shells, shiny metal objects, whole starfish, objects with letters or numbers on them, mermaids' purses, or smoothed green glass, until she had enough to carry. Mary the Magpie was one of her nicknames, nicer than Gannet, named after her sometimes hysterical laughter. That day, though, she wasn't picking up anything. Catching the school bus smelling of old sea urchin was asking for trouble. She had her eye on a bright orange object in the distance. It was a long way away, but she still had time. It was a boat, she realised. As she got closer, she saw that it was an inflatable dinghy, with three people standing around it. They didn't see her approach, busying themselves with ropes and plastic boxes of stuff. And when she called higher, they turned around, shocked, hurried, 
worried. A gaunt man, still young but with greyish hair and a beard, and two women. The one who had long red curls and a friendly face, when she got over a surprise, smiled at her. Where are you going? asked Mary. To the windscale waste outlet. Why? To block the pipeline. Do you know they've been dumping dangerous radioactive waste out to sea for years? Mary thought hard. Well, some people say that. There are rumours. But most people around here, they don't believe it. I suppose because their dads work there. Exactly. And we're Greenpeace and we're going to put a stop to it. Greenpeace? Wow, cool, said Mary. Can I come? I don't think that's a good idea, said the man, laughing now. It's dangerous. We'd better get going. Cool, can I watch? asked Mary. You'll see it on the TV news tonight, but sure, and you can give us a hand pushing the boat out if you like. Mary helped drag the dinghy over the sand. The three waded into the sea and clambered in. They waved. Good luck, shouted Mary and she saw how tiny the boat seemed when it was full of people and between the waves. Luckily, the sea wasn't so rough today. Mary thought about all the times she'd swum in the sea. Of course there had been rumours. Lambs with two heads, that sort of thing. And her friends, at least those whose parents didn't work at the factory, joked about the radiation never going outside the boundary fence. No one spoke about the real dangers, even though she knew a kid with leukaemia. In the distance she could see two men with something, maybe a camera. They waved at the boat as well. At least they had support on land. The boat made slow progress along the coast as she walked further along towards the power station. She could hear it now, a low rumble, a singing drone and hissing steam in the background. She'd been there once with school. They'd walked through the giant turbine halls with fingers in their ears and had been told about how safe it was. At school they taught a lot about nuclear power. Most of the kids who didn't leave to study ended up working there. And those who went to do science at uni all came back too. Everyone called it the factory, as if they just made cakes or shoes. In fact, one of her friends whose dad worked there said that when she was small, he told her that he worked making clouds at the cloud factory. A bit further along, she climbed up onto a concrete block covered with barnacles so that she could watch the boat. The boat looked tiny and fragile, sometimes disappearing behind the waves. Suddenly there was a jab in her back. She turned, startled. Two policemen looking at her, one with a gun over his shoulder. A gun, thought Mary. The police don't have guns. The other one she vaguely knew from the village. Name, said Gunn. Mary. Mary who? Mary Garnet. Okay, Mary, now nice and easy, you're going to tell us who your friends are. Friends? them in the boat. They're not my friends. I only just met them. You helped with the boat. We saw you. 
They asked me to. I don't know them honestly. They're from Greenpeace, and they're... Fuck, muttered the local officer, and started barking into his walkie-talkie, which crackled and beeped in response. That's it, you're coming with us, said the one with the gun. They're going to stop Windscale pumping illegal waste into the sea, said Mary. It's illegal. That's enough of that, he grabbed Mary's arm. Mary thought quickly. Something was going very wrong. She took a deep breath. I'm not going with you, with that gun. I'm on the beach. It's a public space. I'll go with him to the police station in the village if I have to. It was a joke, actually, the police station. A bit like the tennis clubhouse, but with cells, she thought, as they locked the door behind her. Mum would come and get her, she thought. She sat down and started crying. She must have fell asleep, because suddenly there was a commotion outside and she heard Mum's voice, or rather a mum, putting on her best theatrical, outraged parent voice. How dare you! Innocent girl, out for a walk! Mary listened with pride as Mum wound the police officer round her little finger and realised how lucky it was that she'd ended up here and not at the factory. Mum had been stern with her on the way home, but when they got in, she gave her a hug and told her she was proud of her. They'd all stayed up to watch the late news. Actually, there was nothing on the news that night, total media silence. But still, that day was the start of the downfall of the village. After it became clear that the factory had been discharging nuclear waste into the sea for years, the house prices collapsed. They even changed the name of the plant to Sellafield, attempting a rebrand. It was still a beautiful place to live, but you didn't want to swim there anymore. When Mum had first been diagnosed, she was convinced that the cancer in her jaw had something to do with radiation. Later, it had spread to her throat too. She kept saying, It's bloody Sellafield. I should have moved away. But Mary didn't think so. Her mum had been a jeweller, had spent years in a badly ventilated workshop, inhaling the fumes of hot silver, gold and copper pieces plunged into sulfuric acid. Years working behind a polishing and buffing machine, wearing paper masks that slowly changed from white to black over the course of an afternoon. Mary thought that the cause might be closer to home. Luckily, after radical removal of random bits of her, as she put it herself, her mum seemed to be clear now. Mary sometimes wondered if she herself had been affected by the radiation. I suppose you never know. It's statistics, she thought. Once she turned on the TV to see a beautiful map covered with circles. The narrator was explaining a new statistical method. Find five points, then draw a circle around them. Find another five, etc. Then repeat with six, seven, eight, nine and ten points. Only then, said the narrator, could you see the clusters. There was a cluster of circles around C-scale, he said, but also around Solkeld and Shap. The two other places were nowhere near nuclear facilities. It was only then that Mary realised they were talking about cancer, leukaemia. It was a beautiful map. 
Naima is sitting looking out at the courtyard. The landlady's estranged husband has just turned up again and they're arguing. She's already bandaged Pilar's arm once after one of his visits. She doesn't want to get involved, but she's ready to intervene if necessary. She has a metal bar next to the door, just in case. Long ago, in another life, she would have taken her to a shelter already, called the police, but she can't. It's important that no one knows she's here. She only leaves the pension to buy food, and she quickly learnt how to dress for her expeditions. In jeans and jacket, she looks like a tourist with her white skin, blue eyes, and people look suspicious, someone even shouting at her from a balcony. In her hijab, she disappears, becomes in a way a non-person in this neighbourhood. No one questions her halting Spanish. It's good to be invisible here. Everyone is tense, and she's seen the police beating people in the street for no apparent reason. In Morocco, that would be almost normal, but she was shocked to see it happening here. She'd thought that it was a nice idea to spend a little time in Madrid on her way back to the UK, just to hang out in a bar and order a fino with a tapa of mojama or something. Bloody bad timing. She's been stuck here for weeks. The last time she was in Madrid was years ago, right at the end of the 80s, in a hotel that was kind of a palace, Palacio de los Ducas de Algo. Of course, it was all part of the show to stay in a top hotel. She'd seen the advertisement. Interested in writing for Vogue, Elle, Marie Claire, press agency seeks journalists to provide content, must be willing to travel. It sounded too good to be true. And it quickly became clear that the whole thing was an elaborate scam. The agency bought up pages in well-known magazines, then targeted a country interested in repositioning itself or sprucing up a dodgy reputation. The yarn they spun was this. Vogue, or some other glossy, was going to print a ten-page in-depth article about the economic comeback of Country X. Interviews and photo shoots with entrepreneurs and ministers were arranged, but the real work, the work that actually paid, was selling advertising in the said in-depth magazine insert. They were usually a team of four, two men, two women, who all had to interview, make photos, hustle and schmooze around, and the job usually took about a week. The catch was this. The company would never pay up front. Everything except their plane tickets was done on credit. Their own pay was in fact commission on the advertising income. Usually it paid absurdly well. But in Madrid, it had all gone tits up. However hard they tried, her colleague had even interviewed the king. They couldn't get the government or the bigger businesses to commit to buying space. And their bills at the hotel were mounting up rapidly. They all kept up the pretense, but they were getting really irritable, arguing with each other. This had happened to Naima once before in Zimbabwe. They'd managed to get away, but only just, and Spain was much better connected. The other three were going to take an early morning plane, but Naima had other ideas. 
She'd had enough of the scam of her colleagues. She was fed up with cozying up to dictators or their mates. She didn't have anything to go back to, really, in the UK. And obviously, she wasn't going to get paid. She managed to get through to Mahmoud on the phone. She hadn't seen him for two years. Then she'd taken her bags to the Atocha train station, caught the night train to Algeciras and the boat to Tangier. And, although she didn't know it then, that was the beginning of her new life. Naima is brought back to the present. It sounds like the husband has left without damaging Pilar or the house, so she'll go and see if there's anything she can do to help. Back in Brussels, Dave had asked Carl if he knew if his neighbours were okay. Carl hadn't thought about them. They were a retired couple who kept themselves to themselves. Carl phoned. He didn't want to alarm them by banging on the door. In fact, they were okay. But they did ask if Carl could get some shopping for them. It was Dave who went to the supermarket, though. Carl was getting a bit paranoid. Everyone uses this lift, 33 floors worth of people. It must be teeming with virus. Do you want to use the stairs then? Dave asked. Bugger that. I did that once when the lift was broken. Took me 20 minutes. I had to go to bed to recover. That's when I started jogging. I hadn't realised I was so unfit. Dave takes the neighbours the bag of groceries. Fresh vegetables, mostly. The woman is crying. She apologises and tells him that one of their friends has died this morning. When he enters Carl's flat, Carl is on the balcony, looking down at two ambulances that have just turned up. Dave unpacks and Carl washes the shopping meticulously with bleach solution, wearing rubber gloves. Dave makes sure he rinses all the bleach off. You get bleach poisoning long before you'll catch corona, he says and he tells him about the neighbour. It's like the end of the 80s, says Carl. I was in Chicago and, well, seeing this older woman. Oh yeah, I remember. The cool video artist. Uh-huh, Joe. At some point, one after the other of her friends started to get sick. Then they started to die. It was like there was this cloud of death hanging around. People still didn't really know how you could or couldn't get AIDS. There was so much disinformation, so many rumours and conspiracy theories, like now. Yeah, said Dave. I read this morning that Corona was either invented by the Chinese, George Soros, Bill Gates, the work of the devil or God, or that it just came from outer space. And that you can inject yourself with disinfectant, or that it simply doesn't exist, that's the best one, says Carl. Is that why you left Chicago? Because of AIDS? No, I, I was supposed to leave for the West Coast anyway. But actually, she did more or less kick me out. I think she wanted to mourn on her own. I was too lively, she said. Too young, I guess. And I really didn't know how to deal with the situation. How to deal with, well, death. 
She kept going out to visit people that I didn't know, and then she'd come back late at night completely distraught. It was just so sad and frightening too. Is she still alive? Yeah, and kicking actually. She's a survivor. We still keep in touch. Remember Justine, says Dave. Who? You've got it. I was looking through your cassettes. Oh, Gus's tape. That's so weird. I never really got what that was about. It plays really badly too. I was there that night, says Dave. What, really? I think I'd always assumed that Gus had just made it all up. No, it was an AIDS benefit, but also like a protest about Clause 28. The same night with the abseiling protesters in the House of Commons and lesbians invading the BBC newsroom. Yeah, I remember really vaguely. There wasn't much about that in the States. So because Clause 28 was a law against promoting homosexuality, and they were going to ban books from libraries and schools and stuff, Gus thought it would be a good idea to read a banned book. And for some reason, he picked Desaad's Justine, along with, well, with live music. Actually, I think it was the last time he ever performed live, because not long after that, he... Had his acid flashbacks? asked Carl. Yeah, he had his crisis. It was a good job that the band were on last, because after about 30 minutes, the audience started to realise that Gus was planning to read the whole book. The musicians had prepared some themes, but otherwise it was all improvised. Does it matter? We have more subjective France that are needed. Given the mechanism's elastic capacities for production, the state can easily afford to be burdened by fewer people. But do you suppose children respect their fathers when they are thus despised by them? I want to a father in the love. Some of the musicians stuck it out. Some came and went during the evening. It would have been better that they had been strangled in the cradle. Certainly, such is the practice in numerous countries. It was the custom of the Greeks. It, is the it was a band without a name. Friends who played in other bands who got together to jam every weekend. For this gig, they called themselves Section 28. Creatures live who no longer able to count upon their parents' aid because they are without parents because they are what we are recognised by other men's It is an entirely different structure we have. After about an hour and a half. A group of women who'd been on a demonstration came in, shouting and singing as they marched up to the stage. Some of the musicians thought they were being attacked and ran off. We are in that sector, 
the women from Amazons International, had just started unrolling a huge banner when two bouncers rushed up to try and drag them off. Gus got into a fight with one of the bouncers. The other one, trying to snatch the banner, fell backwards into the drum kit. Everyone left the stage, but a drum machine just kept on playing really loud. After a few minutes of negotiation with the management and the musicians, Gus managed to persuade them to carry on. on stage did it go on for? asked Carl. Hours literally, said Dave. Gus got more and more pissed and incoherent, but he plodded on. I left before the end. Must have been one already. Gus said they only had a C90 cassette, so that's all that was ever recorded. And later he found the Justine cassettes and copied it. If you ask me, knowing Gus, he'd already planned it. He'd probably uh, found these cassettes and then thought, yeah. hmm, what can I do with and, these? Uh, anyway, she uh, doesn't do it and she gets tied up by uh, the, young, uh, the young lord. She buggers off somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. It goes on for a long time, this book, I'm telling you. And, uh, oh, this is a good bit. Okay, so now, chapter 16. Yeah, Monsieur Rodin. Monsieur Rodin kept a school for children of both sexes. During his wife's lifetime, he had obtained the required charter, and they had not seen fit to deprive him of it. After he had lost her, 
Monsieur Rodin's pupils were few but select. In all, there were but 14 girls and 14 boys. He never accepted them as 12. And they were never always sent away upon reaching the age of 16. Never had a monarch prettier subjects than Rodin. If there were brought to him one who had some physical defect or a face that left something to be desired, he knew how to invent 20 excuses for rejecting it. All his arguments were very ingenious. They were always coloured by sophistries to which no one seemed to be able to reply. Thus, either his corpse of little day students had incomplete ranks, or the children who filled them were always charming. Peace. Mm -hmm.